0: One of my favorite films is an incredibly silly film featuring Weird Al, believe it or not. And in this film, a little team of people try to buy out a cruddy old news station and make it work, thinking this will be their next means of success. He's been through, like, 20 jobs already, right? So why not try something different? (laughs) And as he progresses and the news station builds its, um, its rapport in the community and gets better ratings, they start to find that they're in competition with a particularly, um, belligerent (laughs) CEO from the, the bigger news station across town. And, um, so it's sort of wacky, a lot of wacky features throughout the film, and uh, it, it just cracks me up. But, but in the drama of the film, as the plot unfolds, this, this belligerent CEO who just, you just, th- it's like they, they, they make you want to not like this guy. You know, he's the bad guy, he's the, he's the selfish guy, he, he you know, and, and, and eventually his words trap him because he's caught on tape saying uh, to somebody else how much he hates the town and doesn't care about them, and and he thinks that they're under his control. And basically, this gets exposed in in the end of the film, at the end of the story. But it's funny because um, as 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 the local, the underdog news station is winning and is finally, um, you know, I, I guess you could say they're getting... They're getting what they deserve is to be recognized as, a, as an authentic station. Um, and this expose occurs. Um, the the CEO shows up at the scene, and everybody's celebrating about this news, news station. And, he, and he's just decrying how how could you guys care about this? And to, you know, I'm the big shot. And basically, everybody by now they know where you know, they know what happened. You know, they they know what he said. And he's no longer a respected man in the community. And, but, but, you know, I love stories of role reversals, you know, and earlier in the story, the CEO, just to get this, this poor man who's drabbly dressed to get him out of his face, he, he, the guy asks for change. He says, all right, fine. You know, he comes, goes and takes out his pennies and he says, here's, here's a couple pennies. Don't spend it all in one place. Well, now the tables have turned. This man, who thought he had the whole town under his control, he thought that uh, he was—he thought that he was uh, his success was secure. He thought that he had everything in his control. He just now he's lost everything. His station's going bust. The FCC shows up. They're shutting him down. And as if it couldn't hurt his hubris, his pride anymore that that beat up looking old man in the drab clothes he showed up to thank him for what? and the man says thank you sir thank you for those pennies I was able to sell one for 1.7 million dollars and he's just he's baffled now, now even this, this lowly man, this drab dressed man, who, this beggar who would be found outside his, his huge uh, corporate building is, is, is standing over him and thanking him. And as it turns out, guess what penny this was? If any of you guys are coin collectors, you know what I'm talking about. In 1943, there was, a, there was a, a, because of a shortage, in copper and the, the, the great need for copper in, in production for war, the mints, and there are three mints in the U.S. traditionally, so the three mints had been told to use an alternative material than copper for the penny. So a very short time, they actually used steel and they would press the steel in those, uh, those plates, you know, to, to, to create the pennies. But, and those are, you can find these steel pennies and they're interesting because they don't look the same color and you might say, well, what's so valuable about that? But there were just a few, probably less than 40 in circulation where there were errors made. And there happened to be one that was a Denver mint condition penny that had been pressed with just a little bit of copper and bronze of some sort plated over the steel and for, boggles me, but for some reason that's worth 1.7 million dollars to a collector. And th- um, in all seriousness, the, the story is fake but the, what hap- the sale is real and you can look it up and I think it was 2010, uh, a penny sold for that amount because of its value. Anyhow, I just, I love role reversal stories. And I just think about that. You know, I, I love this text. I think about how God just changes things. It, it, I'm sorry, is this a problem? Can you all hear me? Okay. <laughs> so God changes the scene he changes the game on the world. The world thinks the, the world thinks it knows what's going on. The world thinks that it has everything figured out. and And what does it say here? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So I want to focus on some some realities that we see in this text. We, um, we're going to talk about verses eighteen and 19 first. That we find that the cross exalts God's wisdom as he rescues through foolishness. Okay? The cross exalts God's wisdom as he rescues through foolishness. From the very outset of our passage, we can see that. And I ask you to look down at your text, um, verse 18. So we, we see that Paul divides all people in the two classes. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Can you see that in your text? And he's putting this in terms of these two groups and how they react to the message of the cross. He says, for the word of the cross, all right, not just the cross, but the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But he says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's no third group, according to the apostle Paul, And the first class is obviously a most miserable one, but the second is a most happy class, a class of people who are being rescued from every tribe and nation and tongue and color. Even if you're listening today and feeling skeptical of the Bible, I invite you to listen carefully because, humanly speaking, as with any truth claim, you are free to dismiss what you can't be sure is isn't true. However, what is true must be heard and responded to with care, lest you find yourself on the wrong side of things. I can even say that in everyday life, we know this to be true. Every atheist friend I've had, every friend I've had who's an agnostic, who says he's this or that, whatever, whatever you say you are, You make these decisions all the time, don't you? Is it true that I can't show up to work today because we were shut down? Many people have been struggling with that. Well, you certainly would want to be there if it wasn't true, wouldn't you? Because you don't want to lose your income. Or is it true that I'm I'm eligible for for help. The point is, is whatever we're dealing with, we want to know whether it's true. And yet when we get into philosophical debate in our day, in our generation, suddenly truth becomes this flimsy, nebulous thing. (laughs) And it's been separated from fact. I think that's very interesting. Um, Even if you look into the Latin, uh, what the, the background of the word fact even means is, is something that happened, something that is rooted in history, something that really happened. That is fact. So I really don't see what the dilemma is. I just have to ask, what is the dilemma? How is it that truth has no correspondence to all of reality And yet, we can talk the same language, right? We can understand each other. I can make a cohesive statement that makes sense to multiple people, right? But that's barely getting at scratching the surface. What I'm really getting at is how can truth be separated from fact? When did truth become a purely subjective thing? Because Paul seems to be very sure that of these two groups of people, there is a very important truth, and you want to be on the right side of that truth. Verse 18, it's not for all, but those of us being saved, it's the power of God. You may be odds at odds with this word. You may be at odds with scripture. You may not trust it. And in this moment, I understand. I understand what it's like to not believe. I understand what it's like to doubt. I did not believe my whole life. But I, what, I, what I have to say in this moment is hear what this word has to say and let it speak. Right now, it's telling you plainly that you were in one of two places. You were either on the path of the, the path to destruction, in which there is no renewal, there is no new life. There's nothing that can be possibly uh, give you joy or give you assurance. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no hope. Or you're in this other group. This other group. Salvation those being saved. What does it mean? What does it mean that we're being saved? It's deliverance from physical and spiritual death. What I'm really really saying is, yes, we die in this life, but only those who are saved by God, by the power of God, have deliverance that death is not the final answer. Secondly, what is much more dreadful is what the Bible calls the second death, which is God's judgment, which will be given to those who despise him. So Paul says it's the power of God. What is it that he's referring to? What is the it here? It's the word of the cross. And this word has the power to save. This word saves. Why? How is that? Well, we'll get into that. But know this when God decrees something, it happens. <laughs> so, the, the very subject of this passage has a lot to do with. The, the word of the cross and the very preaching of it. Paul mainly means the word of the cross and this news may sound like folly, it may sound controversial, but it is still news. The word gospel, the evangel, is a word of triumph. It's the same Greek word that was used when the mighty Caesar would defeat his enemies in battle and come back to Rome in a large parade called a Triumph. But before he came, that word was sent to all the lands that he had defeated the enemy that he had won. And that would be that same Greek word, the apostles commandeer that word. And, and and show us how the real triumph, the great triumph, is not Caesar, but Christ. What Christ did at the cross is the triumph. And he's speaking of real historical facts. Okay? This is real history that Jesus was wrongfully accused by wicked men and sentenced to a most vile death, crucifixion, that he suffered that on the cross until his body truly died. But equally important, the news of the cross concerns the significance of his death. So we have to ask ourselves, is it really significant? You have to ask yourself, is this significant? Is it, really, is it actually important? What does this have to do with my life? Did Christ really die in such a way that it had powerful effect for all time, that, that, that this is actually God's means of saving? Or is this just a bunch of baloney? But I'm starting with the starting point of, of that it is a truth claim, why? Because this is what our culture struggles with so much. Why should I accept this as truth? Why should I accept that? Can't my own truth be enough? What if I don't like this? I don't have to accept it. Well, okay, you think that that's truth, but again, if you show up to work and the door's locked, you're not earning any money that day. (laughs) If you think you can do whatever you want as a lawless person, you're going to have trouble with the law. You can't. You you are not in control of everything. And so, again, we have to we have to look at truth this way. We have to. I'm just going to say it this way. What good is the word truth, if if that's all it means is a is a subjective perception? I think that what we are seeing a lot today is. Is this, this word game we play with words and we redefine things because we want them to soften the conviction we already have. We know that God exists. Romans one tells us we are. It's it's very clear. We all know of His divinity. We know of His His goodness. We know that that God. We we at least know God as a judge from the day we're born. That doesn't mean we have His favor, but. We know that he exists, and he and he reserves the right to judge. Our own hearts convict us. And if for ten years you've been living a life of of rampant sin, of self-service, of seeking gratification of your body, trying to get as much as you can out of it without killing yourself, well, think back. Think back to, to years ago before you you started to sear your conscience, what did you feel? You, did you not know it was wrong to treat your body that way? Did you not know it was wrong to lie to your neighbor or to steal or to seek somebody's downfall, right? The Ten Commandments reveal to us and make more clear what's already written on our hearts that God gave us moral agency. He made us to reflect his image, to be in relationship with him and look at how we turn from him. We just, we just want to live our own lives, we want to have our own truth, whatever that's supposed to mean. Truth is meaningful, is a meaningful word only if it corresponds to reality that's external to the individual human. That is reality that exerts its force upon humans regardless of their own personal will or desire. That's really the only sense, if that's not the truth is, we should just take this word and, and throw it out of our vocabulary. Because we already have words like perception, right? Truth doesn't change. Even the ancient philosophers were searching for a kind of truth. They were searching for what kind, what would explain the world, whether it be, uh, you know, Parmenides or, or uh, Socrates or whoever. I always thought it was funny. Years ago, I was stu- in my studies. This guy Parmenides he says, "Hey, you know, you can't step in the same river twice." Well, what's that supposed to mean? Well, you know, things change. Well, this other guy, this other Greek philosopher came in. His name was Heraclitus. And he said, you know what, Pyramidides? Whatever is, is. I think it's funny because he had to actually come out and say that. (laughs) But the point is, is that At least Heraclitus was gripping that reality is what it is and we we can't make it what we want it to be. It just is. So again, the very first verse of this passage is telling you, this is the word of God, is telling you that you are in one of two places. And if you are, and only if you are uh, delighting in this truth, you are in that group, You you are part of the group that that is being saved. You know what is again, I asked, I ask, what is salvation? Well, it's being rescued. It's being delivered. It's being given life when we deserve damnation. So God determines that He will destroy those the wisdom of those who think they're wise. I would say in a word that God does not need to adopt the methods of his creature. God doesn't need to do what the philosophers have done for about, well, at least since the ancient Greeks, trying to... Through, simply through intellect to figure out what there is to know and to obtain some kind of truth, as if truth is basically just something to be understood, just a, a, a principle or a reality, but an impersonal one. And it's fascinating because when I read the Gospel of John, I find that truth is a person. Truth is a person That just blows away everything that has been debated and discussed by philosophers for centuries. They never could have imagined that truth was a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. When he came in our likeness in the flesh and we beheld his glory, right? So, as I said, the cross exalts God's wisdom as he rescues through foolishness. So God is doing more than saving, isn't he? It's not just about saving people, and that is a wonderful thing because if I was not being saved right now, I would not be a happy camper. If I had no hope, where would I be? I still remember the days I did not want to live. There was no hope. God made the the love of God real to me, okay? You want to talk about the subjective element of truth, we can say this, and this is what Paul touches on in a sense. He says, to those being saved, it is the power of God. It's okay that there's a little subjectivity there. We are subjective creatures. We experience things subjectively. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing objective going on. Okay, so you're looking at your verse 18, you're looking at your, you know, what's going on here? Well, for those being saved, they're, they're delighting in this cross, this, this, this repugnant thing that, that mo- the world considers to be silly. They're delighting in this message of the cross, basically in the gospel. Why? Because they're being saved through it. <laughs> I am delighting in the gospel because God saves me through it. it. It's a wonderful thing. But but now now you say, well, what if it? What if this isn't really? You know, that's just your. That, that's just what you think. It's just your idea. It's your it's your truth, right? I've had I can't tell you how many times I've had friends, and these are people who I love, by the way. But people, it's like the wool is over everyone's eyes and. And we're supposed to believe that there can't be any truth that, that governs reality, that determines people's fate. And I read the Bible and I discover something very different. And also very comforting. Because again, when I was in my teens and had no reason to live anymore, I didn't really want this suffering anymore. I hated myself, I hated life, and I had heard the gospel so many times, but it didn't become real to me yet because I wasn't believing. So how did I believe then? Is it just me being good enough to believe? Of course not. I would be, have been best described as uh, a student and um, on his way, on a, even by the world standards in a very bad direction, um, who's probably going to end up um, not even finishing high school or if not committing suicide. I like how Sproul said once that he liked to stress that ideas have consequences. For so many years, the philosophy of, this, and I add this, the oppressive philosophy of Immanuel Kant, David Hume, and all the secular existentialists since, this, this philosophy that, that, that helped create a culture of skepticism and doubt, I'm challenging it right now. I'm standing here and I'm challenging it because it's garbage, okay? This is a philosophy that would have you not even be sure if you can get out of bed in the morning because you don't know what is reality and what isn't. The great Kant, the man who who supposed that truth was so far from us that there was an impenetrable wall that we could not possibly climb over or... or Traverse. What a sad, sad philosophy, and how untrue. Truth can be known, and truth is a person. And he can be known because he came into our world and he made himself known to us so that we could be known by him and know him. Existentialist philosophy will get you nowhere. I met a kid one time at the fair. We were sharing the gospel. He said, I'm a solipsist. I actually learned that term once, you know that? But I forgot <laughs> what it meant. So I said, well, what's a solipsist?" He said, well, basically, you know, I'm, I'm okay to talking with you right now, but I'm not really sure that anything outside of myself exists, so I basically am resigned to that perspective that it could all be a, a figment of my imagination, probably is. You know what I asked him? I said, okay, what you, can I ask your name? He, he told, okay, you know, I think he said his name was Dave. I said, Dave, I have a question for you. Can you look at the clothes you're wearing? Can you look at where you came from? I just want you to ask, why are you not the king of the universe right now? If your idea of truth is true, why are you not the king? Why do you answer to a president who is not you? Why do you answer to authorities other than you? Why were you born to parents that you didn't choose or a place that you were not in control of? How come your whole reality is suggesting to you, uh, as loud as can be, that you are not in control so I'm just trying to understand, if your mind is in control of reality, how is it that that reality has placed you in such an average place? Again, we, we toy, we play with, this is our sinful nature, we, we toy with the truth, we suppress it. We suppress it in unrighteousness, we don't want to look at it. We want a truth of our own making, if, as it were, And it doesn't exist, I can assure you. So, just think of this. As we move into the next, just keep that in mind as we move into the next verses, okay? So, we're going to, in verses 20 through 25, we see that the callous dismiss the cross for another truth but are condemned, okay? If you're writing it down, You can summarize these verses in that the callous dismiss the truth for another truth and are condemned. So Paul asks, and this is very interesting because Paul is a man, did you know that Paul in his day had the equivalent of two PhDs? Did you know that? He had the Ivy League of Jewish training and education growing up. He was set up, they were setting this guy up to be the, 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 the big shot. Maybe, maybe, you know, one. there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I understand, and he was in the Pharisee sect. But if you could just picture yourself, imagine being at the, the top of the Pharisee sect. That would be equivalent to somebody for the wrong reasons, of course. If, in this church, if somebody was looking just to be the center of the community... And, or something, and and was trying to, you know, they were on this track or something. But th- that was Paul, and his name was Saul before he was Paul. His name was Saul, and he persecuted Christians. Remember, and he even then he was on that track. And as he got up, but, but, rewind a little bit bef- before then, but after his his early years of upbringings, uh, Saul was able to. to he, he was able to get a privileged education. And, and as you know, at that time, the, the, in that culture around the Mediterranean, there were many who were uh, Hellenized, which is to say that the Greek thinking and culture had a pervasive influence on them, even on the Jews. So it's probably not surprising to know that Paul had, um, like, he had not just the Jewish Ivy League education, but then he got sent to get a very privileged education as a pupil um, Uh, of one of the well-known rhetoricists and, and, you know, experts in philosophy and law of his day. So then think about it. Paul's like a man who graduated from both schools. And what does he say? After Paul became a believer, after Paul was saved, what does he say? Let's read. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? See how he's referring to all these classical um, prestigious positions, these prestigious types, the scribe that the Jews looked up to, the, the, the philosopher, the debater of this age. But he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Remember what I said? Earlier, God cannot. I'm sorry. People cannot know God through its their own wisdom. The philosophers have tried to achieve, um, to attain truth, and barely got past first base. <laughs> okay, look at Aristotle. He 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 had a good point to say. You know, the there must. We, there has to be a, a God behind all this. You can't have an infinite backwards line of uh, causation, you know? Some, everything has a cause, and it is a cause of something else. Well, then what was the first cause? Aristotle was right to say that. But that's not the same thing as knowing God. He only was honest enough to, to say it's it's absolutely absurd. And you know what? That's happening today. But it's absolutely absurd to say that that somehow we can go about our human lives not caring about origins, not thinking about, and and even if we we have anything to say about it, what are we supposed to believe that, uh, what was this that I read um, from Hawking, uh, one possible theory was all of the material universe was sparked into existence by mathematical possibilities? Are you kidding me? If you have zero, and you multiply that by anything, what do you get? You get zero, my friends. We all know this to be true. <laughs> we all know that you can't have material things come from nothing. And you can't have non life beget life the the theory of evolution still cannot explain and it is a theory all we can observe is is very minor changes in a species that that's called microevolution i don't have a problem with that that's that's like okay you got moths that are adapting a little bit or you got you know there's there's genetic differences even in the human gene pool but we're still humans there's just the evidence just isn't there but even worse, it doesn't even have basic sound philosophy or or thought behind it. How how are you supposed to transition from a sea creature to a land creature, and I was just told that you need about 10,000 years for this change to occur? (laughs) How How do you survive in that situation? I just picture myself just like, Lying on the shore basically useless like I can't do anything, you know, and Because I'm waiting to mutate into something that has legs. It just doesn't add up. It's, it's even the the supposed fittest creature the survival of the fittest could not possibly survive in, in, in these circumstances that we're told that somehow this all happened over time It all came from the same cosmic goop Basically. And again, you can believe what you want to believe in a sense. But do you really believe it? Again, if it's not true and you kind of know it isn't true, isn't it just something you're kind of ascribing to? But deep down you know it's not true. But but Paul says, again, Paul's emphasizing that God is pleased not to cater to the pride of man or his supposed wisdom or even his methods, but to save, this is in verse 21, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So is it really folly? Of course not, because it's reality. But it's going to be called folly and you will be mocked. And, and that's okay. But know this, that God is pleased through a message that seems ludicrous to humanity to save humanity through that. God is pleased. It exalts his wisdom. It exalts his prerogative as the sovereign of the universe. He's our creator Now we have this talk about, in verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom. I think we've talked a lot already about the Greek aspect of seeking wisdom, but we have to remember the Jews at the time didn't have the same kind of thinking as what the Greeks popularized. It wasn't exactly the same. The Jews wanted to see signs. They tended to demand signs. And, and, And to a point, it's okay to expect signs. Jesus did signs. Jesus proved himself to be God in the flesh even just by what he did. Jesus did the things that only Yahweh does. The the Jews sh- the Jews would have understood that if it weren't for their pride. And and some did understand and some did believe, but but many did not. They saw Jesus controlling the weather, stopping a storm, or they saw Jesus Make a lame person walk. And, and, and it all goes back to this, just like we saw in the first verse. There's two groups, my friends. There's those who look at the wonderful acts of God, the redeeming acts of God, and, and will glory and delight in it. And there's those who will scoff at what God has done. And I am not the judge of that. I can't determine that. That's something that God knows. He's in control. But these are the two groups. So Jesus said to some of the, of the Pharisees of the, and the scribes, okay, he, he, he told them, you know, you, you want a sign, but you won't be given a sign. Point is, is in that moment, they were demanding more and more signs. Well, Jesus already gave them signs. And what is really the greatest sign? It's almost like, oh, why didn't I think of that, right? What's the greatest sign that Jesus performed? Well, I think the greatest sign is, is just Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, the incarnation, is an amazing reality. God, who created this world and doesn't even need it, he comes into it to save it under no obligation. That is incredible. Jesus was God in the flesh standing before them, and they had the gall To say, give me a sign? What did John say? We beheld his glory. So, the glory of God was concealed in Christ, yes. He concealed his glory because as the God-man, Jesus was fulfilling what we read this morning, Isaiah 53. He's not a man who stood out to us as particularly handsome or rich, or, you know, we esteemed him not the prophet says, but that's because God chose through Christ, through Christ and in this way to to bring about the Savior, to to bring salvation, to to resolve this dilemma as it's sometimes called, not really a dilemma for God, but for us theologically we can understand how is it in all of God's perfections, how can God be just and true to his character, which is to be just, and how can God be gracious at the same time? He does it in the name and person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. So yes, the Jews found it to be a scandal. They stumble, Paul says in this passage, they stumble over it. Why? Because their messianic expectations were a king who'd come in and basically take over. And, and we've all been through this. We've had many sermons on this. I don't want to dwell on that aspect. But that was the messianic expectation of the Jews. Um, and, and so Christ comes in this humble figure. Okay, he's humble. He doesn't even have a, a, a home to live in to rest his head in the world's eyes Christ is not important and yet this is God dwelling in the flesh just imagine that scene imagine imagine standing right there in the whole time um, and not even knowing think about how long it took the disciples to realize that Jesus was was not just a rabbi that Jesus was as, as Peter confessed he was the Son of God. And what does Jesus say to him? Remember, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. See, it's not the philosophers that reveal it, is it? It's not our, our minds, our pride. It's not us. He said that the Father revealed it to him. The saving truth that we must know and abide by and live by and believe to be saved is even revealed to us by, by God. So, God gets the glory in all respects. But Paul is clear that whatever, whether you're from a Jew or a Gentile background, you are, uh, characteristically speaking, you are prone to either consider this rugged cross that G- on which Jesus died as to be the a foolish thing or or a scandal we can think about deuteronomy right deuteronomy taught that a man who is hung on a tree is cursed so it's understandable to a degree that that was scandalous to the jews but again it's it's like jesus said you know to some you you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life but you do not come to me jesus is saying the scriptures testify of him. So, if you're not understanding and seeing the truth of Christ, you're, you could read the scriptures till you're blue in the face. You're not going to get anywhere. They didn't understand Isaiah 53. They didn't understand that God chose that Christ the Son of God in the flesh, that the God-man would be cursed for our sake, for your sake, for your sake, for your sake, that he would be cursed. He would take that curse that you deserve and take it upon himself and nail it to the cross. He became the curse for us so that we would receive the righteousness of God. What a great exchange Jesus went willingly to the cross. He went willingly. That was his mission. No wonder the early Christians considered the, the symbol of the cross to be a non-negotiable symbol. It's been argued, I've I read books by John, Starr, John Stott and others, and, and it's often brought up that, you know, the. Why were why why didn't the early Christians adopt a different symbol? Why the cross? There are there's many great theological things that we could conceivably um, have a symbol for, right? I, it's even in fact in the earliest basilicas you can see there are mosaics depicting other symbols too, like like um, uh, a basic. <laughs> I'm talking a very basic mosaic. You know, it's, it's a symbol. But some people thought it was a treasure chest. It actually turns out they were depicting Noah's Ark. But why is that? Because the early Christians understood the, the correlation of Noah's Ark to Christ. Okay? Just as in, we see in the Old Testament. God saved people that he favored and, and he had mercy on. And, and particularly Noah's family in that time. And he saved them from judgment. And they came out on dry land when it was all over, and they were saved. And it's so fascinating because even the Hebrew word for the pitch that, that, was, that Noah was commanded to put over the ark, did you know it's the same word that's used for covering? And what does the scripture say? Blessed is he who has a fine house? No. Blessed is he who has a prestigious job? No. No. Blessed is he whose transgressions are for, are are covered, okay, covered. Who, whose whose iniquity of the Lord will not hold against him. Isn't that amazing? And and so, but again, it gets to the cross. It's all. It centers on the cross. What we believe, um, our salvation is is the, the center of it all is what Jesus did on the cross. So, and, and again, you see in Jesus, in his own mission, as Jesus described to his disciples, once they, the minute they start getting his identity, you, you see this in the Gospel of Mark, they start getting his identity right, and then immediately Jesus changes the paradigm. He starts talking so much about that the Son of Man must suffer. And go to the cross. He's talking about himself as a suffering servant. They're like, what's going on here, Jesus? You said you were going to be the king. Um, you, you know, you, everyone understands you to be the, the most eligible person here. We want you to be the king. And, and now you're saying you have to suffer. What's going on here? Um, because they didn't see the correlation. They didn't understand um, that Jesus is a suffering servant. But Jesus just kept telling them. And he revealed more and more about how his mission was to suffer. So, God's, God's plan to save us, again, it may be, seem foolishness to some because, because of the unbelief in, in, heart, in their hearts. And I would be the same way if it weren't for God's work in me. But the fact of it is, and I say fact, is our triune God has chosen to glorify himself and save a people for himself from condemnation, which they all rightly deserve... By sending his son in our place to to take and bear the wrath of God uh, on him uh, on the cross. And it was a once and for all sacrifice. It was a once and for all appeasement of God's wrath. And again, I can just imagine the minds of some of my friends. Um, Why would that matter? Why do you need someone to die? Because your creator is a holy God he will not let anyone dwell in his life-giving, life-sustaining, glorious, wonderful presence if they have even the, the smallest set, uh, a speck of dirt. You know, if they have the... If, you, if you've broken one of God's moral laws, which he wrote on your heart, even before you were born... If you break one of those laws, you've offended a holy and righteous God. And, and what we're going to say now, that all God can grade on a curve? Absolutely not. God doesn't have any respect for the things you've done to try to be a good person. He doesn't respect any of that. He knows that you have offended his holiness. And he has given one way for you to be forgiven. And that's through believing And what Jesus did on the cross. And what did Jesus do on the cross? Jesus, in his humanity, because he's both God and man, in his humanity he experienced separation, separation from his God and Father who he never even sinned against. He experienced the wrath of God. His blood dripped down and this is the precious blood of the only human being who ever lived and didn't sin his blood dri- literally flowing off of his body he was broken for us His, I just can't it, it just it chokes me up sometimes I think about that scene and I think about there's an old song by Michael W. Smith but he would say he, he says like a, like a rose trampled on the ground and speaking of Christ. We can relate to that. The, the most beautiful man who ever lived, the most righteous and good, being trampled like a rose in the pavement. What a sad sight. We can say that of a rose, how much more the how much more God the Son in the flesh who died for us. And if you can look at this God, if you can look at him and this god who's willing to be experience the shame of being crucified to save sinners to bring them back to life to right relationship with him to reconcile them if you can look at this god and not be impressed i'm sorry there is there's nothing left for you there's no hope because that means that you're living in in the, the your heart is full of unbelief and and you're seeking your autonomy and you're, you're, you're wanting to be, uh, you want to be in control. But you have to relinquish control. You have to relinquish being that person. You have to come, you have to believe in what God has done for you. If you want to be saved from his coming wrath against sinners. And again, this is the truth. This is why I talked about truth earlier. It's not something that you can control. It just is. God, the eternal God whose character never changes, who is, who is perfect, absolutely good. Think about that. This God has provided a way for you to be saved from his wrath that you might instead enjoy his mercy, but you must believe in Jesus Christ whom he sent. You must believe in in the saving accomplishment that Jesus made for you on the cross. So finally, let's let's just look into the last few verses. and, and, I, and as it says in verse 25, um, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. The point is is that, uh, not that there is any weakness in God at all or foolishness, but, but it, this is to to challenge our hearts. The word of God is active and it's challenging our pride. Our pride that says, what do you know, God? I know more than you. <laughs> How can the creature say that? If you were to do a exegetical study of this passage, you'd find that Paul refers and alludes to Old Testament passages, one of which the prophet is speaking, he's speaking because God is having him speak, the words of God. The pro- and the prophet is is basically saying, how can the potter say, how can how can the clay say to the potter what to do? That's essentially what that passage is saying. God created you. It's not, it's it's not up to you. <laughs> it's not you you can only surrender to his will or rage against his will to your last days when you you'll be standing before his judgment seat and I, I would strongly advise that you ask him and you call upon his name you call upon Jesus call upon him for mercy ask him to overcome your doubt and your 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 the sin in you to give to give you the faith to believe even because because if we don't have faith in Christ, we have no hope. Again, it's God's divine prerogative to extend mercy to the wicked, that's us, who rebelled against his good and rightful kingship. God said to Moses, I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And we also see in the Old Testament who has been his counselor, right? No one counsels God, he's God. So we see in the next section that the called of God, do you see that? Verse 26 for consider your calling, brothers. So you can see I'm actually speaking what's in this text. The called of God, guess what? We see that they, they exalt God in their smallness. All right? The called of God exalt him in their smallness. We are small people. <laughs> I am a small person. I really don't have, I really don't feel like I'm a big person at all. In fact, um, you know, like, like many of us, we, we, I mean, it's it's like the argument goes like this. Maybe there's some of us here that are the exception, but normatively speaking, who here has a lot of power in earth in the worldly sense? Who has power? Who has, massive wealth. Really, come on. I mean, how many here even went to an Ivy League? And and, and it's not to say that if you ever have any of those qualities that you can't be saved. That is not the point. The point is that it's for a reason, and it's on purpose, that God has chosen to save for himself a people out of the world who, for the most part, the world considers to be unimportant. (laughs) For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But follow the motive here, because this is God's word speaking, and he's revealing to us so that we can know. We can't know everything there is to know about God, but what he's revealed to us, right? Like Moses said, what he's revealed to us is for us. So let's, let's understand something about God here. But God chose. What is foolish in the world? Why? To shame the wise. What is weak? To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that what, what did I see there? Wait a minute. So that, that's a purpose statement, isn't it? So why? Verse 29, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. My brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of you who is believing in Christ, who has been saved, who who has a regenerated heart and loves the Lord, let me tell you, you're never going to boast in heaven <laughs> about yourself. Why start now? So let's apply this to ourselves also, those who already believe. If you catch yourself boasting about really anything other than Christ, you're losing your perspective, brother, sister. I remember once hearing a a friend in Christ talk about his career and his advancement, and there's like no mention of God. It was basically like, I did all this. And I was just kind of like, okay, well, you know, I, I mean... I kind of expected a little bit more of, you know, by God's grace I got to this place and by his, you know, according to his loving kindness, he's given me these temporal blessings on earth. Um, sometimes we forget to give God the, 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 the praise and thanks that he really deserves. Is there really anything you're enjoying in your life right now? I mean, I'm talking about something good <laughs> that, that didn't come from God. No human being will ever be able to boast that they did anything to earn any part of their salvation. And it says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who is him? I think it's pretty plain. Him is God the Father. So he's saying according to the, the call and ordain the the ordaining of God that, that God ordains your salvation before, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, before the foundations of the world, that God brings you the God the Father called you and you are now in Christ Jesus because he called you. That's what it says in verse thirty. But he says, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. See, we can we don't need the wisdom of men. We want the wisdom of God. That we, we receive that through Christ Jesus. And he says, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Redemption is kind of a might sound to some like what does that mean? Is that a theological term? It simply is to be bought out, to be bought out of slavery. God bought you out of slavery so that you can live unto God with a renewed heart and glorify his name. He didn't merely give you a a helping hand. He rescued you and gave you new life. I'm talking to those who believe right now. And even sanctified you so we have the once and for all sanctification that we receive. That's when, but through believing Christ, if you believe in Christ, or if you, anyone's listening to this and you haven't believed in Christ, if you believe in him today, God promises you'll receive the righteous standing of Christ, the status of, his, of, the, of a, true, a true child of God through the merits, not of you, but through the merits of Jesus Christ and what he did. That he, di- that he willingly went to that cross and, and died, truly died, and he bodily rose from the grave, defeating death. And this really happened. This is history. So if you believe in Christ, you receive the gift of actually being able to be called a child of God. Before that, what is there? Nothing. Nothing good. You only know God right now as, as, as a judge. But the purpose of redemption, the purpose of Christ's coming is to, is to free you from slavery to sin, to free you from the condemnation you rightly deserve due to your sin, and to make you a child of God so that you no longer know God as judge, but as your heavenly father. I know God as my Father, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ did. So, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? I just want to summarize this for a moment. We need to re def- we need to look carefully how we're defining important terms such as truth such as faith such as life w- you my brothers and sisters are going to have a lot of people talk to you more and more like what is you know like like oh okay you're a religious person well I'm not religious well that's because it's popular to see yourself as not religious today but really think about it i mean what is religious you know you could you could look at the the cambridge dictionary and religious just means believing in in a god and having a way of your life that a way of life that reflects that belief i mean it it a more informal definition is of of of, of religion is just um something that anything that a person does passionately and regularly well, gosh, I mean, people play video games passionately. <laughs> people are about a sport passionately and, and work almost every day of the week to train for that, for their athletic competitions. So how is that not religious? <laughs> but I, but in, our cult, in the cultural thinking of the day, it's politically correct to be irreligious But again, why? Because the cross is foolishness? Because I don't wanna be branded as one of those Christians? Well, look, God is the reality and nothing's gonna change that. He's God and he's always gonna be God. And he's inviting you into a right relationship with him. But you have to believe in Christ. You must believe in the one he sent. You'll accept no other basis when you stand before him than that you've believed in Christ. So let's remember what truth really is. Let's remember that life, this is not life, friends. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not life. This is, this is like, sort of life, (laughs) okay, life, real life, true life, is abundant life in Christ. So we have a, those who believe now, we have a taste of it, but we still have to deal with this decaying body, we have sickness, we have sadness, we have personal loss. But when Christ returns and we who have died in this body receive the promised resurrection, oh man, is it going to be awesome. <laughs> and man, is that a day to look forward to. We, we should be saying marathonah to each other. Come Lord Jesus. That's what the early Christians did. Come Lord Jesus. They made that a greeting that they said to each other. Because how great is the hope. That we have in Christ, what we look forward to is amazing. We're going to have life in the fullest. We're going to have life. Who, we who believe in Christ will have, will be. There will be no tears. There will be no more injustice. The kingdom of God will be will will be established on the earth, in God's timing, and we will be there reigning with Him. Why? Because we did something? No, because God loves us and he chose to redeem us and to even share in us. God the Father wants us to share in the inheritance of, that, that he is gifting to his son, that we even have the gifts of the, that are given from the Father to the Son, we share in that. That's why the Bible speaks so much in the New Testament of Christ being our head, If we have union with him, we have all things through him. So, truth, life, faith. These are important terms. Let's not let the world deceive us or lead us astray by these attempts to redefine what these words really mean. All right? Faith is seeing. Seeing is believing. Seeing is nothing. I say say to my friends who love Descartes, he's like this French philosopher, what what, what does that do for you? You know, he kind of proved that anything could be doubted. Okay, and we have today, like, it's popular to be skeptical, so we have to be skeptical about everything. But skepticism never did anything for anyone, except make them doubt everything. So if if Descartes makes this point okay you can question whether you even exist or no he could, anything just accept that he says i i i know i think therefore i am he said so we know he's a thinking being well, you know and i actually used to be really attracted to this kind of stuff i thought it was really fascinating and it, but, but it, it has no real worth look do we get do we clap for that what credit is it to you to say okay, I at least know I'm an existing being that thinks, right? (laughs) Skepticism is like the bedrock of of the society we live in today, and that is just, it's no foundation for anything. Seeing is believing. I mean, I'm sorry, believing is seeing. Seeing can't prove anything to you, because the real problem is our heart. Our heart is the problem we... We can doubt anything that that can be doubted just because we're being stubborn. And that's what the sinful heart does in the face of the gospel. God spared no price to, to provide of the way of salvation and we stand there and scoff. And all I can do is just urge anyone listening, anyone who hasn't believed in the gospel but wants to be made right with God, know that he is here. He is near, and he is not a God who is who is only vengeful. If that were the case, he would have already just, he would have already taken it out on you. God, God. The Bible says that that God's patience toward sin—that's our hostility toward Him—is to lead us to repentance. Okay, so he does that. He's patient toward our hostility toward Him so that we may repent and believe the gospel. So, now is the day of salvation. Believe the gospel and be saved. Come to that place where you actually know God as Father through Christ, and, and you can actually have assurance of salvation. The, the, you know, so the, the verdict is this. Man sin against God... Rebelled against his kingship, disobeyed his commands, loving sinful pleasure rather than God, being ungrateful to God for the life we were given, and robbing God of the praise and glory which He deserves. But, but God is God. His judgment is coming, and only those who believe in the truth in the cross, receiving Christ as Lord, will be spared of that terrifying judgment. That is the truth. The holiness of God demands sin is punished, uh, that sin is punished. And it's a true statement. The wrath of God will either be poured out. In the final analysis, the wrath of God will be poured out on you by sending you to a place apart from his presence, a place of suffering called hell, or was already poured out on Christ at the cross for those who believe. So, I ask you to fix your eyes on Christ, my believing friends. I ask you to run this race race with endurance. Um, Understand that God didn't save you, that you would become proud or boastful, but to make you meek. His people should be a meek people, a humble people. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a statement. Some call the cross foolishness. Personally, I I look at the cross and I say, what amazing news. What hope. This is the best news I've ever heard in my life, and ever since then, I've always known that I've been forgiven. What a blessing. What a blessing it is to know God. So let's boast in Christ. Let's praise his name, and for those who don't believe, I, I invite you to read a gospel, to, to, to read about this Jesus who came and died and rose. Let's pray, uh, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word. That your word is true and never leads us in any direction that would be, that would be for our demise. But your word is trustworthy and true, and always leads us to, to flourishing and to life, an abundant life. But we must recognize you as God and worship you. You are the true and living God, the Triune God. It's not our decision. It's not our place to to define God. We can't possibly even comprehend You, God. But, but You are a gracious God, and You have revealed Your perfections to us. You are full of of grace and mercy, and You're just, and You don't turn a blind eye toward wrong. And 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 with and just Lord, You glorify Yourself throughout history. You've glorified Yourself. And especially culminating in in sending your son to die on that cross. Something that the world you even knew already would mock you for. And God, just because of your love, your great love for us, and your love for your own name, that you have done this great thing. And that in this word of the cross, by your decree, the very benefits of salvation of what Jesus achieved at the cross are received by us who hear and believe. Help us to believe, God. Help us. Give us faith. May we glorify your name, God, and boast only in Christ, who is our only hope, who is our Redeemer and our coming King. In Jesus' name, amen.